All right, guys, welcome. So today I'm really excited because we are going to be talking with Astrid. And Astrid is a dietitian. So first off, we're going to be talking about health food and misconceptions around health food. This is a subject that I get a lot of questions about. And Astrid is someone who's very, very knowledgeable in this. So first off, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, do you want to maybe just fill people in on who you are and kind of what you've been doing over the last little while? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm very excited to be in your podcast today. And basically, my my background is a little bit crazy because I I come from South America. I did my bachelor's degree back in uh, 20, 2006. And then after I finished that, I graduated in 2012. Did a little bit of work on private practice and teaching a lot of different population, especially gen pop and even personal trainers, athletes as well, on the basics of nutrition, sports nutrition, uh, and, and healthy eating. And then moving, I moved to Australia for to, to start getting my master's degree and pretty much get my English better. And after that, I pretty much finished my master's degree and started straight away as a private in a private hospital as a clinical dietitian uh, uh, in a rehab hospital in a rehab setting and also in a mental health setting so I've been doing that for the past four years and in on top of that I've been doing on, on the side, my nutrition coaching. So I've been really working on the behavior change, the mental um, aspect and the mindset of changing behaviors and modifying habits in regards to sustainable changes uh, on the long term. And this is mostly the things I, I do work with my clients for like fat loss or PCOS, uh, clients uh, might just need to improve their health overall. So there are a couple of things that I generally do with my clients. And that's basically something that I, I've been passionate about for the past, I don't know, I guess, even after, even before I, I graduated in my bachelor's degree, I, I, I always thought that was the area that I really, really enjoy doing. So that's, that's who I am. I basically done uh, about nine years of dietetics since I graduated. And that's where I am currently. That's awesome. And I think it's really unique as well that you have that clinical experience because so much of that does carry over into real world coaching scenarios where you see people with, you know, either disordered eating, like full blown disordered eating behavior or, um, things that are potentially going to be a precursor to that type of behavior. And so it, it, I feel like it's something that's becoming a little bit more pervasive within the industry where we have, you know, individuals like yourself who do have that kind of clinical side coming in and offering just better information and better resources so that people can, uh, you know, coach themselves and or their athletes and, and get much better results and kind of understand that uh, more intrinsic psychological component to, to diet and, and food. And uh, I think especially given the topic, uh, this is something that's, that's really interesting as well, because there seems to be not just a, you know, a good or bad component when, when people are looking at food, it's almost this moralistic 
um, you know, superiority of things like organic food or, you know, over things like junk food. And so that's kind of where I wanted to start the conversation about like, how can the quality of food impact our health and performance when calories and macronutrients are equated? So, you know, if we're looking at organic food or if we're looking at conventional foods or even just kind of whole foods versus maybe foods that are a little bit more processed and packaged and things like that. Yeah, that's, that's something that we generally are talking about all the time. And I think it is important to bring this, this topic forward just because it, it can bring some confusion and, and very it is very controversial when it comes to looking at what processed food is and how food quality might impact your health overall on the long term. I think it, re it really depends on the, on the goal when we think about the client's goal and what is the time frame we're looking at when, when it comes to incorporating these type of foods. I generally, I'm a, I'm a person who likes balance And, and I think every single human likes some junk food every now and then. So I think it is important to sort of really think about what the main goal is, how, what is the health status of that person to begin with, and what is the proportion of that sort of highly processed foods that can be part of a healthy diet. So for me, all food fits is just how much, how frequent and The dose pretty much makes it poison when it comes to certain things uh, in terms of highly processed foods or I don't know whether you mentioned sometimes conventional versus organic. For me, it is a, a topic that I really want to sort of bring some light into, but at, at the same time, just bring some peace as well, because I think there is a lot of stress when someone goes and they are not necessarily eating a organic food because they they seem to uh they've been told that organic seems to be more superior healthier and people there then just become a little bit anxious and stressed about like how much food quality could be impacting uh, my goals and things like that so if we define the the specific goals of the person let's say let's talk about um, fat loss, for example, uh, or body composition, the food quality by itself, as you mentioned, when calories and protein are equated, I don't think they make much of a difference on the short term, but it might make the journey a little bit more difficult if, if we're talking about incorporating a lot of highly processed foods that is still feeding your macros. So Um, when, it, when I say that, I, I talk about like some nutrient deficiencies or like there's no fiber in it or there's no good hydration or some adequate amount of the composition of other sources like uh, the type of fats you're eating, the type of carbohydrates, the, the satiety uh, levels that certain foods provide. So when we think about this, it is important to sort of look at the, the whole benefit of having foods that are more nutrient-dense, more nutritious, that bring that benefit in addition to just the flavor, the taste. And generally, sometimes when we think about very highly processed foods, we think about the combination of 
fat and sugar and salt, the three together um, are called the bliss point, which makes sometimes harder to sort of stop in a small portion size. You sometimes might want to go a little bit further and eat much more than you think you are. Uh, so it is it is a, a double-edged sword. You might enjoy it very, very much, but at the same time, you might be having problems sticking with a smaller portion sizes um, or really getting adequate amount of satiety out of it. So when we think about also now the, 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 the goal of health, health overall, health long-term, there is... Um, there seems to be not much of an issue if you incorporate these foods in a very smaller in a smaller amount. So I always like the rule of 80-20. So if, as long as your 80% of your diet is based on whole foods, nutrient-dense, high protein, high fiber, a lot of different micronutrients and variety of, of vegetables and fruit in your diet, you probably might go well still if you add certain highly processed foods in your diet and you should be okay. So it is more, as I said, the frequency and the amount that you consume that can bring some problems on the long term. As long as they don't become your main source or your only source of nutrition, there's the only problem where I would see health would be compromised uh, on the long term. So as a as sort of to summarize, for short term, a smaller, uh, like if you, if you did aim for fat loss or like even muscle building or whatever, whatever it is about body recomposition, I don't think having much, a bigger, a bigger portion from highly processed foods, you might get a lot of troubles health-wise, but you will have a little bit of a harder journey to get there. As long as, as again, as long as you are matching calories and protein. Now, health-wise, you want to sort of aim for that balance of 80-20 um, and that um, pretty much pay attention to how much, how frequent, and how often you're having those foods in your diet. So I guess, I don't know if that response or answers your question. Um, did I miss something? No, I think you uh, did a pretty comprehensive rundown of, uh, of just kind of the general conversation as well. Like, I, I think one of the big things that... Um, the big takeaways from, from what you mentioned was a lot of the times these conversations happen at the extremes where people are like, Oh, junk food is so bad. Look, everyone's obese because they eat McDonald's all the time where that's not necessarily an accurate representation of, you know, quote unquote junk food. It's a quantity issue. And you mentioned earlier dose response relationship. And I think it's a little bit difficult sometimes for people to, to kind of understand that and quantify it a little bit, whereas the reverse they can understand as well. So if I say, hey, if you have one slice of pizza, it's not that bad. A lot of people really have a, a strong kind of objection to that. Even if they conceptually can understand, the, you know, the concept of, of dose response relationship. Whereas if I were to turn that around and say, okay, well, what if you were to eat 10 pounds of broccoli? 
that's probably not going to be very good for you. That's probably going to cause a whole lot of GI distress and, you know, probably make you pretty ill. Right. And so people can kind of understand that. And I find that uh, when you start taking, you know, people definitely need to understand the extremes, but then when you kind of start narrowing it in a little bit more into what you would see is a little bit more indicative of individual behavior on a regular basis where it's like, Hey, you know what? I'm going to have a little bit of chocolate here and there, or maybe I'm going to have uh, mocha, mocha, whatever. I don't actually drink coffee, so I don't really know what they're called, but one of those fancy Starbucks drinks or something like that. You know, I think that's where uh, a lot of the confusion comes in is, is because people typically have these conversations in the extreme end on either side. And uh, I think you did a really great job, honestly, of, of kind of, giving a really broad spectrum overview, but then still providing quite a bit of nuance. Um, and so what, what does the research say about consumption of animal products versus maybe um, vegan vegetarian products? And then also the safety, the bioavailability, and then cholesterol issues, et cetera. Because I know that some people have seen research saying that, you know, the increased uh, food intake, specifically with, with meat and different animal products, is dangerous potentially when we kind of extrapolate that timeline out over over several decades and so what does the research actually say and you know what are the actual concerns that exist when we're consuming animal products so that is that's a very broad question because when we think about the animal products by itself are much more nutritious when it comes to the variety of vitamins minerals uh, protein quality um, like just in general, I would say there is, depending on the source, obviously, and the, the composition of those, those foods, especially animal foods, you might find that they can be very, very nutritious and very healthy um, on the long term for someone who is only eating animal sources. Like I would say, like if, you're, if your diet is based on only animal sources, like there is plenty of of things that you can benefit from. Of course, when, when we think about animal sources, we're talking about dairy, we're talking about eggs, fish, um, mostly protein sources that will, will come from animals. Um, and then there, there is the, the, the difference that some, some products will have lower amounts of fats if you sort of process them to a point where they very, very lean or sometimes they might contain their natural amount of, of fats they, they bring with them. So some, like, like if we really talk about like the difference between fish, meat, and poultry, uh, fish, meat, and poultry, they will have different, the, the distribution of fats will be different. Some like meat, for example, can have uh, the fats within the muscles, so more intrinsic when you have like a, a, a piece of meat you know that you will see that fat is not necessarily isolated or or like put it aside as when you see, for example, the fish. Uh, some fishes might have an ex a fat external layer of fat, but pretty much the internal or the actual uh, meats that you're eating from the fish is very, it's very lean and it's, it doesn't have very much fat at all unless you're having like salmon that or like fatty fishes that already come with that sort of same characteristic of feature that we're talking or referring when we think about meat. 
Same with poultry. Poultry is very similar uh, that some, some fats it will probably be more around certain areas or certain parts of the, of the poultry of, or chicken or, um, I don't know, different type of birds that you might eat. But generally you'll see that the skin is mostly the, the fatty parts. And you, if you remove that, you might get better, more leaner meat by itself. But generally, I think that balance, again, comes to my conversation. And it's not about eating only one thing or just eating and going to the extreme like carnivores, so they only eat meat. Or like if you only eat specific things that has to be, I don't know, completely unprocessed and not necessarily referring to the plant-based. So I like to go... Just a, a, again, a bit, a bit of a middle ground. So plant-based sources are obviously very nutritious too. They have the, the benefit of additional extra fiber, extra micronutrients that we might not get from our animal sources. So I guess the combination of both might get the best outcome in, when it comes to different nutrients, the nutrient composition of a food. And the mixture of both might make the diet more complete because we get the high protein and, and high nutrient dense foods from animal sources, but we also get fiber and other macronutrients from plant-based sources, from vegetables, from fruit. We get from some whole, whole grain sources. So the combination of those Altogether is what makes a diet balanced and complete. I guess it is more to to get back to what the person is is like prefers and what the person enjoys eating. But it's always trying to find a little bit of a balance of how can we incorporate the majority of your nutrition coming from from all different sources. So it is a little bit of a combination of those. Now, you mentioned cholesterol and saturated fat. And again, this pretty much can, can come from the animal source base more than the plant-based. Although you might get some plant-based sources that might contain still saturated fats that can have still the same impact as if you were eating animal sources. For example, coconut oil um, or, I don't know, the other other specific fats that you might get from, from plant-based, you can still get the same effect when it comes to consuming saturated fats. And we know that research, it is very strong in saying that saturated fat definitely is one of the main risk factors that can increase um, your LDL cholesterol. So it's much of, it's, it's really paying attention to, again, the quantities, how much you're eating, on a regular basis of these guidelines suggest that you don't go over 10% of your total calorie intake coming from saturated fats, regardless of the source. And I guess this is the point where you say, even if these, we hear these health, very healthy foods that seem to be promoted as superfoods like coconut oil, that still can increase your cholesterol um, and it's been proven by the Heart Foundation that it is not uh, uh, innocuous fat as other, 
like as as people think that it is just because of the halo health that they are promoted as. So I don't know if I'm answering all the different questions because it was so broad, but I guess I'm trying to bring back to the same the same conversation I started with with the first question, which is bringing balance and the and trying to aim for a little bit of everything that creates that harmony between plant-based and animal-based. So back, back to your point, animal, animal-based sources have, of course, their, their place and they are nutritious, they are important, but we also know that animal uh, plant-based are, have this place as well. And they pretty much to, all together, they complement each other. Some things you'll find in your in your plant-based that animal sources won't have. So to promote um, adequate health, you want to combine them both. I think you made a lot of really great points about um, just kind of even like limiting exposure to uh, saturated fats and then just different points on like bioavailability, but then utilizing a good mixture. And I think even... I guess to kind of pick or sorry to, to kind of double back on, on the first thing we were discussing about like, you know, junk foods versus quality foods and, and kind of the, the underlying point that you've been making about, um, about balance. A lot of the times, you know, when you do try and adopt a little bit more of a strict or rigid approach, even though technically your dietary composition is healthier, the likelihood of you adhering to it for a long enough period of time for it to be meaningfully different than if you were to have a little bit less stringent approach, but your adherence was a little bit higher because you had a little bit more flexibility. It's kind of an interesting trade-off that, uh, that I think is definitely worth discussing. Um, Whether you're a client or if it's just like, you know, you're doing your own diet. Uh, One of the things I definitely wanted to talk about because I know it gets a lot of uh, a lot of discussion. I get lots of questions because every now and then I drink like Coke zero or I use Mio to flavor my water because I have to drink like five or seven liters of water a day. And I can't do it if it's just regular plain water. I don't know why, I just can't seem to do it. And so I use Mio and these things are sweetened with aspartame and uh, not just aspartame, but I wanted to know what, uh, what the research says about you know artificial sweeteners, particularly aspartame, because that seems to be the primary one that's used in, uh, in uh, processing. And what sort of health implications are there for that. And then also, I know one of the things that people kind of wonder about as well is, can these things like bioaccumulate in your system? So can consistent long-term exposure to these things build up and become harmful, even if small doses aren't necessarily harmful? Yeah, this is a great point because artificial sweeteners are such a hot topic and a very heated debate. And I think the most important thing to think about are all these, these camps that fight against each other on this topic. So we have one topic, one camp that they say that artificial sweeteners are bad for your health, increase your risk of cancer. Um, they have problems, they increase your problems with your gut health. And the other hand, we have people that like, um, for the most part, authorities, uh, research, and people that are more evidence-based would say that they're considered safe and there is plenty of research, especially in aspartame, sucralose, that these artificial sweeteners are healthy, um, are safe to use, 
um, not harmful for health, and they can be used to replace sugar intake, especially as a tool to, to promote and, and help aid weight loss, reduce sugar intake, and improve pretty much uh, all health markers when it comes to aiming for that, that weight loss to happen and reduction of that added sugar intake that people generally tend to have um, sometimes even without thinking about it. So for me, artificial sweeteners are sugar substitutes or chemicals that can be added to foods or beverage. Um, it just makes the, the taste, makes them very sweet. So people, we could think about them as more intense sweeteners because in a smaller amount, they can provide a, a more intense uh, sweetness flavor. And, and they just allow to create a substitute that what the, the role of sugar would have in foods, which is makes things taste nice and sweet. So does that, for me, that's the main difference. Obviously, they're chemicals. They are created by, by humans. Some of them, if you look at the history of them, uh, have been occurred by accident, like the sucralose. But uh, at the end of the day, they, they realize that, oh, it tastes sweet. What about if we use this as a replacement for sugar? And scientists realized that they could do that. And they started doing research on how, what would be the safe level for them to be consumed to, to say, well, what is the adequate intake? What would be your, uh, like your upper level that you don't go over that and then could cause toxicity? So that has been research that, that has been established and really to have a deleterious effect on your health from consumption of these artificial sweeteners, you would need potentially to have, like if I give you something to have a perspective, you would need to have at least like around 36 to 40 uh, cans of Diet Coke a day, every day for the rest of your life to have a, an actual effect, negative effect or toxic effect on your health. So when we think about that, we can really be assured that the, the health risks are very minimal and all these strange claims that it causes toxicity, uh, it causes cancer, or it will just make you gain fat anyway because it tricks your body. They all different claims that have no real solid scientific base to, to sort of back them up. So. This basically is what I think you, you wanted to sort of have a discussion on is there are different artificial sweeteners. Obviously, we have aspartame, we have um, saccharine, we have sucralose, and there are others that are not as popular or probably are not used as much anymore. But basically, the most, common, the most common one at the moment is sucralose, aspartame, and we could add to that, to that group stevia, or more like a more natural artificial sweeteners. They still are artificial because they have to be um, fabricated and adjusted to a point that they are safe. The natural 
like stevia can, has actually even a little bit less research than the artificial sweeteners that we just mentioned because it is a bit newer and it doesn't seem to have as much of a research to support that they are safe. Some of them have shown that stevia could be a little bit, has a smaller sort of range to consumption. So it is, the upper level is a little bit lower. So you would need, you could have cer certain levels of toxicity with eating less of a stevia as if you had spartame or sucralose. So back to my point, I'm sorry if I deviate sometimes, I just get so much ideas at the same time in my head that I go back and forth. But my idea is to pretty much say that many types of artificial sweeteners exist uh, not all of them might be approved in certain countries, but for the most part, the most relevant or the most consumed and world, worldwide recognized as, are sucralose, aspartame, and we can add their, I don't know, stevia if you wanted to. And this new, there's another new that is called monk fruit. Uh, that seems to get, be gaining some recognition and um, gain popularity. Uh, I've tried them. I don't really like the flavor of it, but you might, you might find that some people prefer these natural sweeteners as well. So there are different claims that we could go into, but I don't know whether you want to go in much in depth of that or you think we could... Um, get specific about something you want to discuss. No, that's fine. I think you did a really good job at kind of covering the, the bigger picture and then especially, um, you know, quantifying what that sort of upper limit looks like for consumption of artificial sweeteners being so high, like the, the likelihood that you're going to be able to even do it if you were to intentionally try and consume that much aspartame is highly unlikely. Um, so I know that I, I think you did a really great job. Um, one thing that uh, some, I don't get this question that often, but I know that it's still fairly pervasive within like health and fitness communities are, are the impacts of microwaves on food. So, you know, a lot of the times I've heard people make the claims that when you microwave food, it damages the, I don't even know that people are saying like the, the actual structural composition of it, like the cellular composition and, uh, and it, it makes it uh, like toxic for you and it decreases the nutritional value. And I've heard all sorts of claims about it. And so I wanted to know if you had any sort of um, uh, information on that research base or anything like that, because it's not something I've looked into. I use a microwave. I honestly don't give a shit, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Look, for me, microwaving is safe. Um, there is nothing risky about microwave radiation. Like a lot of people think, oh, well, because microwave utilizes um, obviously radiation uh, to, to heat the food, it is, it is bad and it is dangerous, but really there is nothing risky about it. I think it is safe. Uh, it maintains the nutrient quality and it it just facilitates your life so much when it comes to get things convenient for people that like perhaps have lower skills 
cooking or putting things together. They can buy foods that are pre-prepared or like rely on a food company delivery and they can just heat the food, uh, have them have a really healthy food and just enjoy it and still have a, a good nutrition base um, just relying on microwaving. So I think the, there is, again, these camps that are completely extremist that like, oh, you should be eating all natural. Uh, if you microwave things, uh, that's going to affect the quality of your food and things like that. But the evidence is not there, to be honest. And I think there is more pros and cons when we utilize microwave. Obviously, you don't want to, I don't know, just eat microwaving foods. You want to try to aim for a variety of different ways that you can uh, prepare your food. But this is definitely a safe way to to do it, and sometimes can just make your life a lot much a lot easier by utilizing that. Especially when when we think about some limitations uh, when we go to certain places or if you're traveling. Sometimes you go to to a hotel, hotel room and you will have only a, a microwave uh, and a fridge. So sometimes you want, you don't want to go to a restaurant or you don't have the budget for it, but you can certainly have certain meals that are good quality and still just be in your room. So I guess it comes down to how much of a balance you want, uh, what are your skills, what is your budget, um, for utilizing all the time just microwave foods but at the end of the day it comes back to to bringing back to the the idea that when it is used correctly there is nothing to worry about in terms of microwave radiation uh, or using microwaving to to eat our food because it doesn't cause any nutrient loss uh, even if you're hitting things in plastic or things like that, people might might come and say, well, but like if we hit the plastic, the, that can trigger a hormone disruption and you can affect your your body's balance and stability. And like, I, that's a lot of crap. I, I always come back to just bring come back, bring back the, the evidence of where, where do you find that hitting your food would alter, would trigger a hormone disruption. Tell me where is that in the research? You want to really think about, like, if you if you're really eating all the time microwave food, how, what what would be the risk? It is being shown that the risk for nutrient loss or affecting uh, increase your heart disease or kind of increasing cancer risk, it is very unlikely for that to happen. So it is safe. And I think it is more about really paying attention to what makes it, what makes your life easier, that you can have better adherence, a better nutrient, nutrition quality when it comes to just aim for food that nourishes you and makes you feel good and I think it's, it comes back to that so it's the stop thinking that everything that you eat that is not natural necessarily extracted from the 
from the root uh, of the of the soil or getting get get getting that from I don't know a tree or something like that is going to be only healthy if it's that way. You can have processed foods that are safe and completely perfect for your health. So yeah, I think that's my answer. I don't know if I did miss something, but I guess the most important thing is looking at the radiation that people might be worried about on a nutrient loss. And I think the, the point of the research is that it is safe and there's nothing to worry about. And uh, no, I'm definitely glad that you touched on the, the plastic as well, because that was uh, that was one that I, I didn't bring up. I kind of forgot. But now that you mentioned it, it's definitely something that I've heard as well. Uh, it lowers testosterone, augments your, your you know, uh, free hormone profiles or something like that. But uh, yeah, and I think one thing that you mentioned that I thought was really great and even just kind of as a, as a routine strategy that people can use to sort of filter things out. It's like when someone makes a claim, ask for proof and, and the burden of proof is, is on them. It's not necessarily on you. Like if someone says, Hey, gravity doesn't exist. I'd be like, well, you know, prove it to me. And, and the burden of proof, like it, it rests on the individual who's making a really bold claim like that. Um, and so I think that's definitely one of the ways that you can kind of uh, figure that out. Cause a lot of the times, when you ask someone what they, what they refer to is they're like, Oh, like researchers have, have shown this, like they've done studies on this. And it's like, okay, what was the study? And then they're like, well, I don't know. They can't name the author. They can't name the publication. They can't name the year. They can't name anything, but then somehow you're supposed to believe them. And it's like, okay, well, do you even know statistics? Do you even know research? Do you have like access to these journals? And really quickly you start to realize that a lot of it is just like you were mentioning a moment ago, the naturalistic fallacy where there's this sort of, uh, underlying perception that if it's natural, it tends to be inherently good for you. And if it's unnatural or if it's man-made, that it's inherently detrimental. And that's not necessarily the case. And I mean, right now, this is kind of ironic because we're, you know, streaming our consciousness over the internet right now <laughs> because of technology. And I don't think anyone would say that this is bad or evil or detrimental or anything like that. But then when it comes to food, suddenly we, we kind of shut off that part of our brain that's a little bit more objective. Um, but I, I know that you are on a bit of a time crunch and uh, we've kind of reached that 45 minute mark. So I just wanted to know where can people find you? Oh, well, for me, it is uh, having us an absolute pleasure to have a chat with you. Um, I hope I could bring some value to your audience in these topics. Um, I am happy for sure to do the part two for the other questions you sent me. So I think we definitely can delve into those um, again at any other time. I Anyone who wants to find me can find me in my Instagram as anti-diet dietitian. And it, I do have a, a, a Spanish version of my Instagram for those who speak Spanish and don't speak English. That is called to coach, to coach nutricional. So you can find me there if you want me to, but for the most part, I'm my, in my English um, version, Instagram, anti-diet dietitian, and you can find me as well in my YouTube channel. So I have a little YouTube channel that I'm just started no long ago, 
and slowly putting all the interviews and things that I enjoy doing there. So yeah, that's that's where you can find me and you'll find all my links and my website in there as well. Awesome. So all of that stuff is going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Definitely go make sure you go give her a follow. She puts out a lot of great content on the regular. I think I've been following you, Astrid, for about six months to a year now. I can't remember exactly uh, how I found out about you. I think it was actually through uh, maybe like Gabrielle Fandaro, I think. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, but at any rate, so definitely go make sure you check her out and uh, give her a follow, like her stuff, make sure you share it. And thank you so much for, for jumping on. It was really awesome. And we'll definitely have to have you on again to, uh, to do kind of a part two to this because there's definitely a lot that we, that we could also cover. So thank you so much for jumping on. I appreciate that. My pleasure. Thank you so much.